Hello everyone and welcome to the February 19 edition of the WorkCop Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd Skarin, Manukian, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The California Supreme Court reversed the Court of Appeal and held that an action by the Orange County District Attorney for Civil Penalties under the unfair competition law was not preempted by federal OSHA. The ruling allows public prosecutors to invoke the unfair competition law to pursue big civil penalties and injunctive relief against employers who fail to comply with workplace safety regulations. Solus Industrial Innovations manufactures plastics at its Orange County facility. In 2007, it installed an electric water heater that was designed for residential use. Two years later, the water heater exploded, killing two employees. The Division of Occupational Safety and Health determined that the explosion had been caused by a failed safety valve and the lack of any other suitable safety features on the heater. In an administrative proceeding, the agency charged Solis with five violations of state, occupational safety, and health regulations and also cited Solis with a willful violation for failing to maintain the water heater in a safe condition. Since two employees had died, the division forwarded the investigation results to the District Attorney of Orange County. In 2012, the District Attorney filed criminal charges against the Solis plant manager and its maintenance supervisor for felony violations of the labor code. The district attorney also brought an action for civil penalties under the state's unfair competition law and fair advertising law against an employer. The action alleged the employer violated workplace safety standards established by the state occupational safety and health law and regulations. It alleged that Solis's failure to comply with workplace safety standards amounted to an unlawful, unfair, and fraudulent business practice under business and professions codes. And the district attorney requested $2,500 per day per employee in civil penalties. The employer contended, and the trial court and court of appeal ruled, that the district attorney's action was preempted by the federal occupation Safety and Health Act of 1970. The California Supreme Court reversed in the case of Solus Industrial Innovations LLC versus the Superior Court of Orange County. The Supreme Court concluded that the Federal OSHA Act contemplates a cooperative system of workplace safety regulation, not an exclusively federal one. When federal schemes involve cooperation and concurrent jurisdiction, this circumstance also suggests that the scope of preemption was not intended to be broad. The court reiterated the strong presumption against preemption arising from both the fact that the federal legislation addresses an area that has been the long-standing subject of state regulation and from the fact that California had assumed responsibility under the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Act to regulate workers' safety and health, thereby preempting federal law. 
In a ruling seen as a victory for Grubhub and its gig economy counterparts, a federal judge in California ruled that the delivery platform does not owe its drivers the benefits of an employment relationship, like minimum wage, overtime pay, or workers' compensation coverage. The case may be appealed, but it's the first such case to reach trial and may shape the legal relationship between contractors and the digital platform companies. Grubhub is an internet food ordering service that connects diners to local restaurants. Customers order food through Grubhub's online platform and Grubhub transmits the orders to restaurants. The food is then delivered either by a restaurant delivery person or a Grubhub driver. Diners may also pick up their own meals ordered through Grubhub. Grubhub operates in 1,200 markets in the United States. Of those markets, 250 are in California, and of those, Grubhub offers its own delivery services in five. As of June 2016, there were 4,000 Grubhub delivery drivers in California. The percentage of Grubhub-provided deliveries is growing. The plaintiff in this case, Rafe Lawson, worked as a restaurant delivery driver for Grubhub in Southern California for only four months. He complains that Grubhub improperly classified him as an independent contractor rather than an employee under California law, and in doing so violated California's minimum wage, overtime, and employee expense reimbursement laws. He filed his legal claims in his individual capacity and as a representative action pursuant to the California Private Attorney General Act, known as PEGA. The critical question is whether, under California's common law Borello test, Mr. Lawson was an employee or was he an independent contractor. Prior to performing Grubhub food deliveries, Mr. Lawson worked for other so-called gig economy companies, including Lyft, Uber, Postmates, and Caviar. He drove for these companies, including Grubhub, because the flexible scheduling allowed him to pursue his acting career. Mr. Lawson continued to deliver food for Postmates and Caviar during the four months he was delivering, also for Grubhub. After considering all of the Borello factors as a whole in light of the trial record, the court found in its February opinion that Grubhub has satisfied its burden of showing that Mr. Lawson was properly classified as an independent contractor. Grubhub exercised little control over the details of Mr. Lawson's work. Grubhub did not control how he made the deliveries, nor did it control the condition or the mode of his transportation. Grubhub also did not control Mr. Lawson's appearance. He was not required to have any Grubhub signage on his car. It did not require Mr. Lawson to undergo any particular training or orientation. Mr. Lawson, rather than Grubhub, controlled whether and when Mr. Lawson worked and for how long. Currently, more than 70 states, cities, and counties have filed lawsuits related to the costs of the opioid addiction crisis. Discovery in litigation revealed that manufacturers cited biased medical studies to support claims that opioid addiction was rare. These companies allegedly hired pain management experts and doctors to promote use of opioids to other doctors and provided kickbacks and other incentives to doctors to smart use to other doctors. 
Manufacturers also were accused of creating and funding a medical front group to publish and promote false research and information about the drugs and published articles stating that opioid was non-addicting among other fraudulent acts. And now yet another city has joined in the litigation. The Sarasota City Commission has unanimously voted to retain Bill Robertson, a personal injury attorney and CEO of Kirk Pinkerton, and Stephen W. Tepler with the Abbott Law Group to represent the city of Sarasota in a lawsuit to recover damages related to the opioid epidemic. The attorney team will file a lawsuit in federal court with the Middle District of Tampa against as many as seven or more major pharmaceutical manufacturing companies and their distributors. But in this case, there's a new twist. The two attorneys are taking the case on contingency, meaning the city will not incur any expenses unless recovered during the lawsuit. In 2016, the same pair of attorneys represented the city of Sarasota in the oil spill claim against BP, recovering $3 million then for the city. And our crime report. Urine testing for patients with chronic pain has grown explosively over the past decade amid a rising death toll from opioid abuse. Pain doctors say drug testing helps them make sure patients are taking the drugs as prescribed and not mixing them with illegal substances. Yet the testing boom costs billions of dollars annually and has raised concerns that some labs and doctors run urine tests needlessly or charge exorbitant rates to boost profits. Some insurers have refused to pay, which can leave patients threatened with high bills, and prices for urine tests can vary widely depending upon complexity and the technology used. Some doctors' offices use a simple cup test, which can detect several classes of drugs right on the spot. These tests rarely cost more than $200 and typically much less. But bills climb higher when labs check for levels of multiple drugs and Bills for each one, a practice insurance argues, is seldom medically justified. An egregious example involves Sunset Labs LLC in Houston. After a patient had back surgery, a surgeon prescribed an opioid painkiller and a follow-up drug test that seemed routine until the lab slapped the patient with a bill for $17,850. It charged $4,675 to check her urine for a slew of different types of opioids, another $2,975 for benzodiazepines, a class of drugs for treating anxiety, and another $1,700 for amphetamine testing. Tests to detect cocaine, marijuana, and phencyclidine, an illegal hallucinogenic drug, also known as PCP or angel dust, added $1,275 more to her bill. Indeed, now Kaiser Health News refers to the urine drug testing business as liquid gold. Kaiser Health News and researchers at the Mayo Clinic analyzed data from Medicare and private insurance billing and found that spending on urine screens and related genetic tests quadrupled from 2011 to 2014, to an estimated $8.5 billion a year. 
There are virtually no national standards regarding who gets tested, for which drugs, and how often. Medicare has spent tens of millions of dollars on tests to detect drugs that presented minimal abuse danger for most patients. Payments have surged for urine tests for street drugs such as cocaine, PCP, and ecstasy, which seldom have been detected in tests done on pain patients. Urine testing has become particularly lucrative for doctors who operate their own labs. 42-year-old Candelaria Vasquez, who lived in San Francisco, was sentenced to over 12 years in prison for her role in a conspiracy to manufacture, distribute, and possess fentanyl with the intent to distribute. The sentence followed her guilty plea involving, involving conspiracy to distribute fentanyl and conspiracy to launder the drug proceeds. Vasquez admitted in her plea agreement that she and her husband operated a pill press that generated thousands of fake oxycodone pills. Although the pills were stamped to appear like genuine oxycodone, the pills were in fact laced with fentanyl. Vasquez helped with the pill pressing operation and packaged, mailed, and delivered fentanyl pills for two years before the pair was arrested. She also conspired to launder the drug proceeds, which were received in Bitcoin and exchanged for cash using unlicensed Bitcoin brokers. Vasquez and her husband had distributed hundreds of thousands of fentanyl-laced pills by way of online marketplaces. Fentanyl is a dangerous and highly potent opiate, about 100 times more powerful than morphine. Just 2 milligrams of fentanyl can constitute a lethal dose. Fentanyl is particularly dangerous when it is used to create counterfeit pills. Illegal pill press operators will sometimes use fentanyl, which is cheaper than other opiates, to create fake pills that stamp to look like genuine oxycodone pills. Because fentanyl is such a powerful opiate, a small difference in the amount of fentanyl in a homemade pill can make a huge difference in its potency. Counterfeit pills containing fentanyl have already been linked to numerous unintentional overdoses by users who believe they were ingesting a much less powerful opiate. The United States Attorney for the Central District of California collected over $219 million in criminal and civil actions in fiscal year 2017. Of this amount, nearly $56 million was collected in criminal cases and more than $163 million was collected in civil actions. Overall, the Justice Department collected just over $15 billion in civil and criminal actions in the 2017 fiscal year, which ended last September. Additionally, nearly $35 million was collected in asset forfeiture actions in fiscal year 2017. Forfeited assets deposited into the Department of Justice Assets Forfeiture Fund are used to restore funds to crime victims and for a variety of law enforcement purposes. Federal law requires defendants to pay restitution to victims of certain federal crimes who have suffered a physical injury or financial loss. The largest civil collection last year were from affirmative civil enforcement cases for violations of federal health, safety, civil rights, and environmental laws. 
Prosecutors in the Central District of California recovered $42 million from a settlement with Pacific Alliance Medical Center to resolve allegations that the medical center had improper financial relationships with referring physicians. The United States Attorney's Office for the Central District of California is based in Los Angeles and has branch offices in Santa Ana and Riverside. Currently, approximately 275 assistant United States attorneys serve nearly 20 million residents of the counties of Los Angeles, Orange, Riverside, San Bernardino, Ventura, Santa Barbara, and San Luis Obispo. And in regulatory news, California's insurance commissioner has launched an investigation into Aetna after learning a former medical director for the insurer admitted under oath he never looked at patients' records when deciding whether to approve or deny medical care. The commissioner was outraged after CNN showed him a transcript of the testimony and said his office is looking into how widespread the practice is within Aetna. He said that if the health insurer is making decisions to deny medical coverage without a physician actually ever reviewing medical records, that's of significant concern to him and potentially a violation of law. Aetna told CNN it looked forward to explaining its clinical review process to the commissioner. The California probe centers on a deposition of Dr. J. Ken Iluma, who served as medical director for Aetna for Southern California. The deposition came as part of a lawsuit filed against Aetna by Gillen Washington, a college student who suffers from a rare immune disorder. Washington was diagnosed with Common Variable Immunodeficiency, or CVID, in high school. The case is expected to go to trial soon in California Superior Court. During his videotape deposition, Dr. Illuma, who signed the preauthorization denial, said he never read Washington's medical records and knew next to nothing about his disorder. The doctor said he was following Aetna's training in which nurses reviewed records and made recommendations to him. Questioned about Mr. Washington's condition, Dr. Ilnuma said he was not sure what the drug of choice would be for people who suffer from that disorder. Dr. Ilnuma further says he's not sure what the symptoms are for the disorder or what might happen if treatment is suddenly stopped for a patient. Edna defended the doctor, saying in its legal brief that he relied on his years of experience as a trained physician in making his decision about Mr. Washington's treatment. If the probe determines that violations occurred, the California Insurance Code sets monetary penalties for each individual violation. And in medical news, Britain's Invidior drug maker is launching a new weapon to fight the U.S. opioid crisis. The company believes its long-lasting sub-blockade injection medication being launched in the United States will become a blockbuster medicine, despite the fact of initial sales are likely to be so slow. The FDA approved sublocade injection for subcutaneous use last year. It's the first and only once-monthly injectable buprenorphine formulation for the treatment of moderate to severe opioid use disorder. 
Sublocade is intended to be administered only by healthcare providers and should be used as part of a complete treatment program that includes counseling and psychological support. Sublocade represents a new approach to treating addiction. Instead of going to the pharmacy to pick up tablets or NVIDIA's existing under-the-tongue film, the new injection will be delivered direct to doctors' offices for administration. NVIDIA has been treating addiction for more than two decades, initially selling tablets to help wean addicts off of opioids, including heroin and prescription painkillers. Now its big seller is Suboxone film, which patients place under their tongue or inside their cheek once a day to suppress cravings. Pain pill giant Purdue Pharma will stop promoting its opioid drugs to doctors. This is a retreat after years of criticism that the company aggressively sells the product. The company told employees that it would cut its sales force by more than half to 200 workers. It plans to send a letter to doctors saying that its salespeople will no longer come to their clinics to talk about the company's pain products. Instead, any questions doctors have will be directed to the company's medical affairs department. OxyContin was approved in 1995 and is closely is the company's uh, biggest selling drug. It generated $1.8 billion in just 2017, down from $2.8 billion five years earlier. The company also sells the painkiller Hysingla. Purdue is credited with helping develop many modern tactics of aggressive pharmaceutical promotion. Its efforts to push OxyContin included OxyContin music, fishing hats, and stuffed plush toys. Purdue and other opioid makers and distributors face dozens of lawsuits in which they're accused of creating a public health crisis through their marketing of the painkillers. Purdue officials confirmed that they are in settlement talks with a group of state attorneys general and trying to come up with a global resolution of the government opioid claims. And in other industry news, USI has served over 150,000 clients with property and casualty, employee benefit, personal risk, and retirement products nationwide. The company has just published its 2018 insurance market outlook with insights from national practice leaders. It says that in 2017, there was a continued downward trend in workers' compensation, including a reduction in premium rates overall, particularly in the loss-sensitive marketplace. Given the lack of deterioration in many large carriers combined with loss ratios, it's expected that similar aggressive targeting to grow market share will occur in 2018. While returns for low-risk investment opportunities remain limited, the marketplace's appetite for premium will drive aggressive yet prudent insurance pricing. However, there is underwriting discipline for those clients with poor loss results, declining financials, residents in particular states such as Florida, California, and New York, and those in more volatile industry classes. Carriers will seek higher retentions as the result of client-specific loss severity or in circumstances where clients are pursuing greater premium savings. 
USI provides more predictions specifically for workers' compensation. It says that law-sensitive programs will either see flat rates or hikes as high as 5%, assuming clients have clean or improving loss experience. For those that are seeing worsening loss experience, rates in this category will increase more than 5% and carriers will likely adjust their retention levels. For guaranteed cost programs, USIC's rates ranging between 10% decreases to 10% jumps. Clients with very clean loss experience would escape changes and pricing would also vary due to a client-specific state payroll distribution due to state's legislative pressure on adequacy of rates. Medical cost inflation is expected to rise 6% year-over-year, and this upward trend will continue to affect workers' compensation and loss liability totals. The industry can expect more increases in cost shifting from health care plans to workers' compensation due in part to problems with the Affordable Care Act. Some states are becoming more conservative in their collateral positions for many qualified self-insurers and more employers are looking more closely at their existing self-insured status because of onerous associated administrative costs. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. We also publish a daily flash briefing on the Amazon Alexa Echo platform. Search for Workers' Compensation News on the Amazon website. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, Manukian, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.